Well, fantastic to see you on this uh, rather humid morning, and I'm uh, sweating already, not because I'm nervous about the passage, but it's good to get into God's Word together, isn't it? Father, thank you that you speak to us. Uh, please open our hearts, set our hearts on fire like the early church for you, and help us never to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you grew up in Sunday school uh, around here, uh, you're probably familiar with Acts chapter 3 because of this song. So, uh, Peter and John went to pray. He met a lame man on the way. He held out his palms and he asked them for arms. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Oh, well done, everyone. Uh, happy memories, obviously. I mean, the wonderful thing about uh, children's songs and Sunday school is uh, they, they, they lodge in your brain and you never forget them. Here you are many, many years later, <laughs> uh, and you can remember it like it was yesterday. It's wonderful benefit of kids' songs. One of the disadvantages, though, is they stop you sometimes from plumbing the real depths of God's Word because you're too busy remembering the fun and the actions and everything. And I, and I wonder if in the case of Acts 3, uh, it, it's so much more than just a children's song. It's true and wonderful. I'm glad that we know it. Uh, last week in Acts chapter 2, I uh, very naughtily skimmed over something that remarkable that was in the passage that was happening in the early church at the time it was coming into being. In verse 43 of chapter 2, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, we know from the Gospels that Jesus had given authority to the apostles to heal uh, long before this. But now that the Spirit has come at Pentecost, which we looked at last week, they're no longer cowering away, locked in an upper room. And, and, it, and we're told that these kind of things just happened a lot. Miracles were common in the early church. In fact, they were so common, Luke doesn't even bother to tell us about most of them. They just happened. But he does pick on this one. And I, and I want to ask, what's so special and significant about this particular miracle that Luke recorded it specially for us. What are we meant to see? Uh, and that's what I mean by plumbing the depths. It's not just that it happened and praise God for that, but stuff happens. Let's find out what it is. Now, verse 1 sets the scene. Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. They didn't have 8 o'clock services. They, uh, they came in the afternoon. They got to sleep in. Uh, <laughs> it was early days. And uh, church, uh, there was no church buildings, and so they were still going up to the temple in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish temple, for their meetings. Uh, they, they thought of themselves as fulfilled Jews, and so why wouldn't they be going there to God's temple? And so they're heading off to the 3 p.m. church service there, and, and here's a diagram of uh, the temple layout, which is kind of significant in what's going on. Uh, north is up. Um, the, the whole complex was much bigger. There was a massive courtyard around that. Uh, the wailing wall 
which is still there today, which the, the Jews go to and put their prayers in the cracks of the wall. It's the only part of the temple that's still standing. It's on the west and uh, it's over this side of the diagram over here. Uh, and uh, there was a low wall that ran around the, the courtyard, around the temple proper, uh, which is the dotted line there. And it was a wall that barred Gentiles, non-Jews, from coming in. Uh, there were signs around it at various intervals. No foreigner may pass within the wall around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught, the guilt for the death which will follow will be his own. There's a nice, pleasant welcome sign. You know, welcome to church. Uh, you're going to die if you come in here. Uh, then there was the, the, the temple complex itself. Uh, and it had a series of courtyards within it. Uh, there was the women's courtyard where anyone could go. Uh, and then there was another big wall and a gate uh, into uh, the court of Israel, which is where the men of Israel could go. And then inside that was the big building in the middle, uh, which had the holy place where only the priests could go. And then there's the most holy place, the little square bit, where only the high priest could go and once a year. And only after all the proper cleansing and sacrifices. Uh, the gate to get from the women's court to the, uh, to the court of Israel, to the men's court, was called the Nicanor Gate. And it was named Nicanor after the man who paid for it. Uh, it was incredible. 22 metres high, 18 metres wide. It took 20 men to move it at their working beast. Uh, but it, it was more than just imposing. Uh, it was apparently a wonder to behold. It was ornately carved bronze uh, and renowned for its splendor. I mean, here's a recreation that someone has built uh, just here. Uh, here's a close-up version of that. Um, sources say it shone like gold. It was just amazing. Uh, Josephus says it was of such exquisite workmanship its value far exceeded the other gates that were fixed with silver and setting gold and so people knew it as the beautiful gate but it was the gate that kept you out if you didn't belong you were you know it's beautiful but we can't go in there and this particular day someone was barred from going in verse 2 a man who was lame from birth was being carried there he was placed each day at the temple gate called beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. Now, we're better to sit and beg for help than the door that all the men have to go through in order to pray. The city's packed for the festival of Pentecost, so he probably guessed his chances were pretty good that day of getting help, but I don't think he could have guessed how good, because at the beautiful gate, a really beautiful thing happens. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk and he entered the temple with them he could go in walking leaping and praising God and think of all the things that would have had to happen 
in that instant in his body. As Peter grabbed his hand, his bones straightened and assumed their normal density. His tendons flexed and stretched. His atrophied muscles from whole life of not walking, they filled out and were able to not just support his weight, but because he, he didn't just walk, he, he was bouncing up and down like Australia had won the World Cup. And, and everyone's stunned because they know this guy. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognised that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what happened to him and they came running toward them from what's called Solomon's Colonnade. And so, wow, it's this remarkable event. It's an amazing thing that happens in this man's life. But it's actually what happens next that Luke wants us to understand and focus on. Now, the miracle's the miracle. It's a great thing. Praise God for it. But, but what happens next? When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? That seems like a very odd question, doesn't it? Well, of course they're amazed. The guy's just been lying there for years, gets dragged every day by his friends and dumped. He's a beggar. Now he's walking and praising God and every, his body's fixed. That doesn't happen every day, Peter. What are you talking about? But Peter pushes on. Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? Again, weird question, Peter. You touched him and look what happened. Can't you see why we're so astonished? But here's the point Peter wants to make. You shouldn't be surprised because the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus. As if that explains things. But what is he saying? It wasn't in our power. It was God's power. And why has this thing happen now well because God the father has glorified God the son Jesus has defeated death and now we're in the new age of salvation now he could have stopped there but he didn't he carried on because it's not just that Jesus is in glory that miracles happen and so we should just expect them all the time it's not that this also happened he said and here's the shocking part as a testimony against you lot who've gathered here for prayer at the temple and you see that in the second half of verse 13 you handed him that's jesus over to be killed you disowned him before pilate though he decided to let him go you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you you killed the author of life but god raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this so this isn't just something that's going to happen all the time now that jesus is alive this is an indictment against the crowds and what an indictment notice how the accusation escalates as he he goes through who is it that they have killed they've murdered someone they've killed god's servant is the first thing he says about this guy who also happens to be the holy and righteous one in fact, he's not just that, he's the author of life. What's that say about Jesus? He's not just a good guy. 
in a world where no, God says no one's righteous, not even one, who is the author of life? Who made God did. You killed God. That's a good one for your Jehovah's Witnesses. Friends, anyway, when they come to it. You killed God. That, that's who Jesus is. And to make it worse, Pontius Pilate, the lying, cheating, murdering Roman governor that you hate, he wanted to let Jesus go. Even worse than that, you begged Pilate that a murderer be released instead of the author of life, a guy who takes lives rather than the guy who made life. Anyone remember his name? Barabbas, yes. Son who takes lives was freed, swapped out for the author of life. But here's the thing, God has raised him. Jesus coming back from the dead is the key to this indictment. It is God's vindication. It's Jesus' victory. After all, what would you expect to happen when the author of life is killed? He's the author of life. Death cannot hold him. He lives. And so verse 16, by faith in his name, this man has, uh, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given his perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that the, his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, whom, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. What's the real upshot from this man being healed in this way? It, it's not that Christians can always overcome paralysis with enough faith. No, I mean, the man didn't even know what he was going to get. He was just asking for money and got something better. No, it, it's not that you, you all here should form a queue in order to get healed of whatever. It's, it's that the way is open to come back to God. That's the real opportunity that's available now. That's what Peter's saying. Notice how in his speech, it's all tied up with what God promised by the prophets, that this is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Notice the, the appropriate response that they call for and Peter's calling for is repentance. It's turning from sin and turning to God. That's what needs to be happen and needs to happen in order to be right with God. You need to respond to Jesus, everyone does. Notice what the effects are of repenting and turning to God. There's three there. The first one's in verse 19. All of your sins will be wiped out. Even their sin of clamouring for the death of the author of life, the worst thing that humanity has ever done, even that can be wiped out. How beautiful, how precious is that? You don't have to go to judgment day unforgiven. 
You can be clean, a complete fresh start with God if you want it, free of charge by God's grace. But there's more, like the steak knives in the ads, but, but, but even better, look at the promise again, repent, turn back to God, verse 20, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Those times of blessing and refreshment which the prophets described as features of the new age are, are now arrived. And he's talking about joy in relationship with God now and forever. But there's a third and even more dramatic effect. Repent and turn back to God so that, and here's the weirdest one I think, so that God may send the Christ whom he has appointed for you, the Messiah, the one all your hopes and dreams have rested on, right? If you repent, your sins will be forgiven, times of refreshing come, but Jesus will come back. That is, somehow, people's repentance and Jesus' return are linked. How is that? Well, they're linked because each person coming to faith brings God's plans one step closer towards completion. It's, it takes the mission that they've been given to take the gospel to the ends of the earth one step closer to being finished. Each person that comes to faith brings Jesus one step closer to returning. Sins wiped out, refreshment from God, the heavenly kingdom ushered in. That's what the prophets were all on about and they're available now, notice in verse 26, because Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Saviour, Jesus who brings all of God's blessings, does all that now by, how? By turning you from your wicked ways. And here's, I think, where we really need to pause and reflect. Do you get what he's saying? It's not in anyone's power to turn back to God. It's not just as it wasn't in the man's own power to walk again. Sin is so great that even the power to come back to him is in his hands, which is a tremendous thing. It's a scary thing, but it's a tremendous thing. If you are a believer, it's because God overcame your stubbornness and turned you round. But that also means that he can overcome the stubbornness of anyone, of your friends, of your family that you've been praying for. He, he can overcome the stubbornness of growing up in other cultures and other religions. There's nothing stopping God. He can do anything. He is able. A and haven't we seen that amongst us over and over again over the years? Uh, some of you will remember Simon Hingston, our previous assistant minister, before David, he hardened atheist, now preaching the faith he once mocked and was out to prove wrong. Uh, think of Kathy over there who, who walked into church, I don't know, it was seven years ago, I don't know, whenever it was, to prove her boss who was a Christian wrong <laughs> and walked out a Christian. Uh, think of Jerry who's been coming along, who's got a pamphlet on the street coming from mainland China that says Jesus loves you. Like, who's that? And does he? Okay, all right. A few weeks later, it's a Christian. Think of the Apostle Paul, who we're going to meet in a few weeks' time in Acts, going around arresting and murdering Christians, 
who not only found forgiveness and became a Christian, but became Jesus' apostle to the nations. God is in the business of turning hard hearts. Well, there's an uproar as a result of what Peter says. The crowd are divided. Half of them, we find out, are one to Christ that day. Right? It's another mass conversion. And the other half, they want the apostles' blood. That's how chapter 4 begins. While they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. So they were arrested. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men who became uh, came to about 5,000. At the end of Peter's sermon last week, remember, 3,000 people became Christians. As a result of this, another 1,900 people become Christians. And yet, at the same time, there's big trouble. Peter and John are hauled off to jail. What is their crime? What do they really want to stop? Their crime is they were speaking about Jesus. They want none of this Jesus nonsense and they're going to put a stop to it. They're arrested and the next day they're called before an elite tribunal, all of whom have vested interests. The next day, verse 5, their rulers, elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest. Caiaphas, remember, they were complicit in Jesus' murder. John Alexander and all the members of the high priestly family. This is a big deal. This is all the formal and informal leadership structure of the nation. Secular and religious all together and they all want it stopped. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? What are they going to say? Will they wimp out? Will they be silent and say, well, I don't know, just got lucky? No, because... They've received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost days before, which is God's power to be his witnesses. So they're not going to hold back. And wow, verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one that your Bible always predicted, which you should have been listening to. He is the stone, which is the capstone. He's the, the key to the whole structure, which holds it all up. He's who healed this man. He's the name we are proclaiming. I mean, you imagine you are on trial for your life and uh, one of them is going to be beheaded not long after this, John's brother, James. They're just outright daring. They don't care. They're just, it was Jesus. That's whose power it was. 
Well, the authorities don't know what to do with that. They're, they've done nothing criminal, right? They, they know it's a miracle because there's the guy, he's well, and everyone knows who he was. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realised that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognised that they had been with Jesus. So they get their heads together and think, what are we going to do? Well, verse 18, they call for them, ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Would you dare to say that? You are not going to shut us up. We cannot stop. What's the outcome? Well, we won't read the rest through, but the authorities release them. They threaten them with further action if they go on as they have been. The believers come together and pray in thankfulness and they call upon God to help them speak with even more boldness, to not be put off by the threats. And and the church is galvanised even more to stand for Jesus and to love one another deeply from the heart. We'll see that next week. They, they, They know they need each other. But let me draw out some implications of all this for us. The first one's about faith and miracles. I mean, here is a truly remarkable thing that happened. It it really did. There's no doubt about it. No one said he was faking. Um, But the most important thing that happened that day was not the healing itself. But what it signifies that Jesus is risen. He is the ascended king. God, can God heal miraculously? Of course he can. Does he sometimes? Yes, he does. Should we expect it to happen every time we pray for it? No. You look at the miracles in the Bible, and there are lots of them, but they're really grouped in three chunks. At the time of Moses and the Exodus, which we looked at the end of last year, everything amazing was happening. A lot of it, you know, terrifying at the same time. At the time of Elijah and Elisha, uh, when the whole nation had abandoned God and here were the two prophets, and at the time of Jesus and the apostles. There are other miracles that happen very occasionally in the scriptures, but they're really grouped around these momentous salvation events. That's not to say that God doesn't ever do it any other time. He can and does, but it's not the expectation. Right? Pray for healing. Pray when you're sick, of course. But that's not what God is promising to do. In fact, you look at the man who got healed. He wasn't even asking or expecting to walk that day. What did he want? Money. Right? Those Christians, those religious people, they're good for cash. Right? Uh, he, he hasn't got faith in healing. Is it? Uh, um, the nature of faith is not that we can make God do things that we want for us all the time. The nature of faith is to trust whatever it is that God decides to do. We're called upon to pray to God about our concerns. Don't be anxious, but pray about anything. 
but God will do whatever he considers best. The prayer of faith is the prayer of the Lord Jesus himself. Your will be done, not mine. Second thing though, persecution. That's what this event brings in. This is the reality for the church from this moment on. And, and we shouldn't be surprised when persecution happens, when we see it in the world or when we experience it ourselves. Jesus promised his people, he promised these apostles at the Last Supper, they would be persecuted, arrested, sneered at, and worse for naming Jesus as their Lord. And it didn't take very long to come. Here's when it started. 50 days later. And I think there's two important things to learn here about the persecution of Christians. It's totally irrational, but it's very, very real when it happens. It's totally irrational, isn't it? All Peter and John did was help a guy who couldn't walk, walk again. They weren't seeking to be evangelists, they, they were just helping a guy and all the people asked them for an explanation. You might get asked by someone about your faith at work and you start to answer them and then you get shot down and you think, well, why did you ask me? <laughs> it's irrational. But it's also very real. It's difficult and it can be very painful, especially when it's people you know and love who start to treat you with contempt. That's why we need each other so much, as we'll see next week. Thirdly then, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's primary workiness is what? It's to stand up and be bold. Remember Jesus' promise from Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. When do you see the Holy Spirit at work? That's when. When ordinary unsophisticated believers like you and me stand up and accounted when peter and john come home the church prayed consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness boldness is that something you pray for for yourself for our church for, for the church at large in the world it's something that god delights to give and why shouldn't we be bold? Remember what Peter said in court, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Well, which is right? Fear people or fear God? Which one's right? Fear God, right? He's the one that holds your eternity in his hands, right? The worst they can do is kill you. What really is there to fear? God is at work. And as we get on with being witnesses, what happens? Yeah, people might hate us, but other people are saved. Be bold. Which brings us to the final implication, which Acts 3 and 4 is really pointing to. The exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. If you haven't already, 
commit that one to memory. Make up the song about it, right? If songs are so good at burning in your hand, I mean, we've got a couple at the 10 o'clock service. There is no other name in heaven can be found. There's songs like that, but man, who can write a silver and gold song that captures that and burns that into our hearts? People like to complain about the exclusivity of the gospel, that we say Jesus is the only way. But he is. He has to be. He said it himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He has to be the only way because the way is to him, the author of life. He is the one the Father has glorified. He's the one that's seated on the throne. And because Jesus is the only name by which people may be saved, we cannot be silent because he has saved us. We're not an army at war with our community, but we are envoys of the king proclaiming amnesty, peace with our maker that everyone can have, peace that's paid for by him. They must come through Jesus. He is the only way. He is the only name by which people must be saved. And they must come now, for today is the day of God's favour. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, this, this period we live in, when people can still find out about our glorious Lord and be saved. There is a day coming when that will not be possible, when he returns. We may or may not have silver or gold to offer people to help them. But we do have Jesus to offer who can do far more than heal people. He is the only name by which people must be saved. Are you ready to stand for him who is the only way? One of the dangers of starting by singing that song is you walk out and go, I remember that day. That was the day the preacher sang that weird song. (laughs) I remember that. That was great. Are you going to walk out saying, Jesus is the only way and I'm called to stand for him. Father, please give us boldness. Give us confidence. Help us to fear you and not people because Jesus is the only way by which people must be saved. We pray, please, for our community, for our neighbours, for our colleagues, for everyone we come into contact with, the school communities that They wouldn't be those who fight against Jesus' lordship, but they would be those who turn and are saved. But Father, whatever happens, help us to stand proudly for the King, the author of life, the Lord Jesus. 